Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) You may be seated. Well, good morning. We, uh, we're in week two of a new series that we just kicked off, uh, a series called Our Aim. We are refocusing in on the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And what I tried to do last week is show you that our mission as a church, the Sacred City mission, is deeply embedded in the mission of God. That, that we're not just inventing something that we would you know, have this niche market as a church to do something that would make us really hip and cool, but we're actually hearing the word of God and responding to the mission that he has laid out for his church already, which has been articulated by Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in Matthew 28, when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Now, if Jesus really does have all authority in heaven and on earth, And the first thing that he commands us to do is to go make disciples, then we ought to be asking ourselves this one big question, how? How exactly 
are we to go and make disciples? I, um, I've been into this Netflix show called Rust to Riches. Um, it, it's a show about a, a, a garage. They, they, they fabricate, build these really custom high-end vehicles that do all kinds of crazy art. I love the show because lots of creativity, but they have an incredible knowledge of cars. I mean, they're just ripping engines apart left and right, taking paneling off, you know, ripping off axles, doing all this crazy stuff. And, and I, I'm not a motorhead by any stretch of the imagination. I, I know I drive a car. I have basic understanding of major components of the car, but there's something about this that's fascinating to me. But if you were to tell me, hey, Sam, I need you to go build me a car, I would have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, Teddy could maybe help me or I could look up YouTube videos, but I don't think I'm gonna get very far. I would totally come to the end of myself in knowing how to do this. And I think many Christians feel the same way. We hear the command of Jesus. We hear him say, go and make disciples. And we say, I don't know what I'm doing. Got no idea. Got no clue how I'm supposed to do this. Now, hopefully if you were here last week, maybe you're a little bit closer in the fact that you can define what a disciple is. We said that it's this, a disciple knows the heavenly father as revealed through Jesus Christ, his son, that's that's been uh, made known to us through the work of the spirit. And as we know this triune God, we, we worship this God. We worship Jesus as our redeemer and we obey him as our king. So maybe we have a working definition of what a disciple is, but then how do we actually make that kind of a person? It's, it's a very important question. And for years and years and decades and centuries, the church rightly so has been thinking through these questions. How do we do this? And I want to suggest that there have been well-intentioned churches that have a desire to make disciples, but have found themselves concocting their own methods and how to go about making disciples. So so they, they hear Jesus say, go and make disciples. And they're like, well, I guess it's up to us to figure out how to do this. And so you see a bunch of different methods of discipleship sort of emerge in the churches. Here's a few of them that I just off the top of my head, passive, the passive approach. This, this idea that if we can just get people in the door, and they participate in a Sunday gathering. There's sort of this thing, this osmosis that happens that as they hear the word and, and just sit around Christianly people, that they'll just sort of naturally drift into discipleship. All they need is time and exposure. Another approach is this personal piety approach. So, so maybe it's a little bit more engaged in that. Hey, come to church, but then we're going to send you to your prayer closet. We're going to give you a Bible reading plan and send you to your prayer closet. And then this is basically a solo project for you to do from now on out. You just kind of isolate yourself. You, you know, you, you get in the word and you hear from the spirit. And that, that's basically the extent of it. Or there's a more programmatic approach to disciple making. One that I think has, has been adopted a lot more so than the other two um, by churches in our day of saying, hey, we've got a program for that. We've got a class for that. What we want you to do is come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday morning, Sunday night to a class that we're gonna put on and and the experts are gonna teach you what it means to be a disciple. We're, We're gonna train your noggin. It's sort of an intellectual endeavor. Now, I think that each of these methods has a piece of the truth of what it means to make a disciple. I think there's some redeeming qualities, but if you just take one of those and stay in that lane, there are some major pitfalls to each one of these. The passive approach, the method of of passivity, removes the active and intentional pursuit of discipleship. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, that's an activity. 
That, that's something that we give ourselves to, but it's, in the passive way, we sort of take our hands off and, and say, well, if it's the Lord's will, then he'll change me. The personal piety approach tends to leave people isolated. I mean, they love the word of God, rightly so. They, they love communing with the, the spirit through prayer and the father. They love that. It's, it's great, but they're very detached from the rest of the body, the rest of the church. And, and what happens in this scenario is, is there's sort of disjointed relationships. And a lot of times these people, though they love the word of God, are self-unaware of themselves. They, they don't know what they don't know about themselves. They can't see the back of their head. The programmatic approach um, views discipleship as the activity of the experts, the paid professionals. They, they come in and, and they, they teach, and usually discipleship then only happens in certain settings. It's really isolated to a certain night of the week at a certain location from a certain person. It's just really narrow in its scope. And what happens if, if we just live in one of those lanes it creates a truncated disciple. Uh, uh, a deci somebody who probably is well-intentioned, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, well-intentioned, they wanna grow as a disciple, but, but there's just like pieces, dimensions of their Christian life that are lacking. And so rather than just me sitting up here and throwing stones at these methods, I wanna take approach, in a pro or take, take some time and think through the question of how do we make well-rounded disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we make disciples that are well-formed in the gospel in every category of life? Now, thankfully, this isn't something that we have to invent in ourselves. We, I, there's no brainstorming meeting after church where we're gonna get the best minds to sit down and think about how we're gonna create a new machine to pump people out this way. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the way Jesus made disciples. How did... How did Jesus make disciples? That, that should be our question. If, if the command is to go make disciples, how did Jesus make disciples? Jesus made disciples in community and on mission. This is not just the best way among many ways to make disciples. This is the only way to make disciples. In fact, we've got this plastered up on our, our wall there. You go right next to the giant TV. It says, the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's the way that Jesus did it. We, we don't need to invent a new way. And so what we're gonna do over the next two weeks is dig into this. We're gonna dig into the how of discipleship. And today our focus is specifically, we make disciples in community. Now what we're gonna do today is we're gonna bounce through a number of different texts um, this is a, a topic that is spread all throughout the New Testament. I could literally flip through the New Testament and pretty much pick any page in the Bible that I could preach the same sermon from. Because Jesus and his people talk about this so much. Community is a major theme of the New Testament. And today I want to show you three things. Three things in this sermon. One, that the gospel creates community. Two, I'm going to show you the kind of community, the caliber of community that the gospel creates. And number three, why you must be in Christian community in order to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna stop first in Ephesians chapter two. If you wanna grab a pew Bible in front of you, hopefully you brought one. Um, otherwise, we will have the words, the, the passage up there on the screen as we follow along. This passage in Ephesians chapter two that, that Ms. Steph read um, shows us that the gospel creates community. This is the first thing 
that it shows us here. Um, and as Paul unpacks this, we start unpacking verses 11 through 22, the first thing that we're going to be reminded of is our life before Christ, life BC. Life before we were saved and adopted into God's family. This is something that, that actually two times that the Apostle Paul does at the very beginning of chapter two and then verse 11, he says, therefore remember, well, remember what? Verse 12 goes down, so if you wanna jump with me. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's shining a light on your life before you came to Christ. It's pretty unflattering. I mean, look at, look at these things. He says, you were separated, you were alienated, you were strangers, you didn't have any hope, and you were without God. You were cut off. Now, what's interesting, though, is if you jump back to the beginning of chapter 2, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it actually portrays things in a, in a bit grimmer light. Not, not just are you separated, not just are, are you uh, alienated and cut off and without God. The Apostle Paul says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, just from a very, you know, high up view, one of the things that this passage, these two passages here are showing us is how destructive sin is. See, the reason why you're dead in your sins is because you were in sin. You were living according to sin. It had a control. It was dominating your affections, your desires, your mind. And it led us straight to the grave. But it shows us also that sin is relationally destructive. That, that it cuts us off from God. The, the relationship, we talked about this a little bit last week of, of the walks with the cool of the day that Adam and Eve had with God in the Garden of Eden. Those are, those are long gone. We're cut off from that, that, that union, that relationship. Now, many people get uncomfortable when we talk this plainly about sin. They say, hey, listen, we know that sin stuff's bad. Why don't you just sugarcoat it a little bit? Like, make it, make it a little more palatable to, to digest, because we don't want to run anybody off here, right? And I don't hope to anybody run anybody off. But if you don't understand the severity of the reality of sin... You will miss the reality of our need for a savior and the joy and good news of the gospel. See, to, to understand and appreciate the good news of the gospel, you have to see the bleak backdrop of sin. Now, Paul doesn't lay this out and say, man, you guys are a bunch of trash and I just want you to sit in it for a minute. I just want you to just kind of like feel bad about yourself and you know, maybe, maybe you'll pull yourself up. He doesn't do that. Paul rushes in both instances to proclaim the good news of the, of the gospel. He says, yeah, you're dead in your sins. You were cut off from God. And then we see two of the best buts you'll ever see in your life. You see, he says, you, you were cut off, you were dead in your sins, but God being, this is verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
It's by grace you've been saved. It's not, it's not you getting your stuff together, feeling bad about it, and, and then you start you know, white-knuckling your way toward God. It was while you were dead in your sins, God met you right where you're at. He did it by his grace. And then he raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So yeah, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive by grace. He says the same thing as you go down um, from verse 11 and 12, where he talks about how you're separated. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, this is good news. This is good news for sinners. Now, if you, if you don't think sin is a problem in your life, you're not gonna see why the good news, this has anything to do with good news. But if you realize, man, there's something broken in me. I find my heart gravitating for things that are worldly, that are fleshly. I find myself with affections um, that are, are for things that are much greater than my affections for God. If, if that's the case, if you find that, that you have this brokenness in you, the gospel of grace meets you right where you're at. The Apostle Paul wants us to know, sure, you are a sinner. And sure, left alone in your sin, things are pretty bleak. But because God has a love-soaked grace for you that is shown to us in the death and resurrection of his son Jesus that is applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are made alive in Christ and you are brought near to God in faith. See, if you're a Christian, you are nearer to God in Christ than you could ever make yourself be near to God by your own works. You can't achieve it. It's a gift of grace. Now we have a tendency when we read this stuff about salvation, about how God brings people from death to life, how from darkness to light, from, from shame to glory, we have a tendency to read our Bibles through a very Western individualistic lens. We, we have this tendency to think that, that salvation, that, that matters of faith are, are just a private thing. It, it's between me and God. I'll, I'll let you know, I'll put John 3.16 on my Facebook profile or something to let you know that I'm, I'm a little bit spiritual, but, but this whole thing about life with Christ is very much me and God. I hold it to myself. We think it is, it's just purely a vertical relationship. Now, I want to say, yeah, there is... Part of this is a vertical relationship. You're adopted by God. You are brought into God's family and now you have a relationship with your heavenly father that you didn't have before. That, that you get to draw near to him as he draws near to us. But there's also horizontal implications to this gospel because God's grace reaches everywhere that sin touches. Now, if, if you've been around for a while, you know relationships are hard. It, it's hard to be in, whether it's marriage, marriage is hard. There's a, there's a difficulty of marriage. Raising kids is hard. There's being in a missional community is hard. Working in the world, somewhere, that's hard work relationally speaking. There's all kinds of opportunities for that person's sin to hurt me and my sin to hurt them. 
And it creates what was intended to be this harmonious thing of of, uh, human-to-human relationship becomes very dysfunctional and disjointed. And that's because sin has permeated both of our hearts. Sin makes it hard for us to be in relationship with other people. It's not just that our, our personalities don't mesh well. It's that there's something broken inside of each one of us that just, when we come in contact, it grinds us in a way that's really hard. And when sin goes unchecked, it compounds and hurt builds on hurt. And what happens eventually is that this, this uh, hardened heart sets in And instead of love for neighbor, you have hostility for your neighbor. Now we see this very specifically. Paul's writing to to a church in Ephesus where he is basically speaking to two types of people. There are the Jews, the people who are from the lineage of Abraham, who who inherited the promises of God that, that he would bless them and make them a great nation. And then you have people who are on the outside of that covenant, on the outside of that promise, who are called Gentiles, people who didn't have the same cultural and familial heritage. And, and what happens here between these two people groups in the first century and, and, and even before this is that there's hostility towards them. That there's this friction, there's this rub where Jews don't like the Gentiles and the, and the Gentiles look down their nose at the Jews. And what's happened here in the gospel is that Jesus brings these two types of people who are naturally enemies towards one another, hostile in mind and heart, and he brings them together. Now, how does he do this? How could, you know, we, we've, there are all kinds of, of, of ills in our society, all kinds of, of people group frictions that are, are out there. How in the world can Jesus overcome some of these deeply embedded problems that we see throughout our society? The answer to that is in verse 16. The hostility that kills community Jesus takes upon himself and he kills that hostility on the cross. See, see the sin that people have committed against one another goes on Jesus, that, that dividing wall of hostility, the thing that said, hey, we can't be friends, we can't be together, we can't live in community together. Jesus takes that upon himself so that party A can forgive party B and party B can forgive party A. And in this, The wall of hostility is toppled to the ground and Jesus takes two groups of people who are very different and from them brings them together and creates one new man. The two become one new man. And some of the commentaries say um, that it's not just a one man, but talking about a new humanity, a new type of human in the world. And so what this shows us here, as the Apostle Paul works through the the vertical implications of the gospel, having peace with God, now he shows us there are horizontal implications of the gospel where I now have peace with others. And it's because of this, the gospel creates community. Anywhere the gospel is preached, it will, anywhere the gospel is preached and received, the gospel will create community. Community, a place where we are living in the reality of our vertical relationship with God that we have been reconciled and a relationship with those around us that we are moving towards reconciliation. That it's actually attainable because Christ has taken the hostility upon himself. 
Now to go back to this adoption imagery that we use, this is common, you go to 1 John, John talks about adoption a lot. I mean, this, this is a, a, an illustration, it's a, a spiritual reality that is brought up time and time again throughout the scriptures of being adopted into God's family. And even here, the apostle Paul says, hey, you're, you're, you're members of the household of God now. What's he saying? You're, you're part of God's family. You've been brought in together. So what's going to happen is you will rub shoulders with your brother and sister as we share access to our heavenly father. So as I draw near to the father, as we're moving together into the father, we are going to rub shoulders together and I'm gonna have to live into the reality that here you are right next to me. Now this connectivity of Christians is emphasized really all throughout Ephesians, all throughout the New Testament, but but specifically here in chapter two, we see three illustrations of this. We covered the first one, the household of God, this familial tie. The other one is is Paul says, hey, you you are fellow citizens, that you share a common heritage that, you know, in the United States, we have this thing called patriotism. It's we, a love for country. There's the same sense that, that we have that as Christians. There's a love for the kingdom of heaven. And we're fellow heirs, fellow citizens of this kingdom. Third one is, he says, you're, you're a holy temple. To Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, you're the bricks. You're being stacked on top of Jesus. And when you stack brick on brick on brick, what happens is that you as a brick are living next to your brother or sister as a brick. And in that, it's not just an inanimate object. It's a living temple. It's where God himself dwells. But there's another illustration that that the Apostle Paul uses as you get into chapters four and five, and that is the church, the community of Jesus, is the body of Christ. You might be a finger, I might be a toe, somebody's an elbow, but we're all brought together. There is this connectivity that happens within the Christian community. And this is where Christians exist. What this means is that Christian community is not an extracurricular piece of the Christian life. It's not just for the, uh, the varsity Christians who have this like, you know, this sort of prestigious, they seem to have it put together. It's not just for those people. Christian community is a place where all Christians must find themselves. Why? Because you've been grafted into God's body. It's the primary context where the Christian life is conducted. See, this goes against the Western mentality of I am my own. I I can stay to myself. and, And as long as I don't, you know, as long as you don't put too much expectation on me and I don't put too much expectation on you, we can keep this sort of loose association of relationships. The the church goes against that totally, rejects it. It's like, well, yeah, you are, you are an individual person. You don't just get engulfed in this thing. That's why you're a member of the body, but you have this connectivity that God has brought you into that you just can't bypass. So the gospel not only saves you from sin and death and loneliness, the gospel puts you into community. Now, the second question is, well, what kind of community is this? What what kind of community am I finding myself part of now when I've received the gospel of grace? Now, Ephesians 2 cues us into a few of these traits, really takes a big picture approach. 
But one of the things that we can see really easily here is, is the diversity of this family. We talked, we talked already about the Jew and the Gentile divide, right? The gospel brings people together who don't naturally go together according to the world. Now we see this with the cultural implications of the Jews and the Gentiles, and we can even take that and transfer that to some of our cultural connections. How white and African-American and Asian people can be brought together in the gospel. The, the ethnic divides that exist in our society, those come toppling down. They, we don't lose them. We don't become this bland culture, but there is this willingness to open your arm to the other and say, I love you. I want to see what you got going on. The gospel brings people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds together. So you see the rich and the poor at the same table. You see the educated and the uneducated together walking by faith. You see men and women, and you even see a bunch of different personality types. And you can go on and on and on. Every categorical difference that we can sort of divide up by the flesh, the gospel of Jesus knocks all those things down and brings us together. And so we see that the gospel creates a diverse community. The gospel is for all people, so we get a Christian community that represents all people. Now, a place where we also see this reality of diversity is within Acts chapter two. I wanna flip there just for a minute. This is sort of a, a hallmark text that we, whenever we preach about community, we always come back here. It's really one of the benchmarks here for us as a church. We love this passage. But what, what's going on before we get to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is the reality of, the Pentecost, of a Pentecost, where the, the Holy Spirit comes, rests upon the disciples, they start preaching, and there happens to be this massive collection of people from different countries, different regions, even different ethnic and, and socioeconomic backgrounds coming to Jerusalem, and they hear the gospel message, and even though they're all different, boom, it makes a community. A unified community. And verse 42 shows us, gives us a window into this. Let me just read this here. Um, this is Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Now, this shows us that the church, this Christian, this gospel community is not a collection of people who are loosely connected. You know, it's not just the, a collection of people who give each other the head nod as they pass each other in the hardware store. You know what I'm talking about? Not just a bunch of acquaintances. Oh, yeah, I saw them at church last week. I just, was a... No, this is, this is a collection of people who are knitted together tightly, that life happens together. Now, what this has to mean 
If, if God is moving his people to this kind of community, it must mean that Christian community is not merely a, an event that you put on your calendar. It's not merely something that you block off and say, hey, from this time to this time, I'm going to be in community. It has to be more. Like, certainly there are elements of that, right? We, we do this with our mission communities. We set aside one night of a week where we're gonna have a family meal. We're gonna pray together. We're gonna study God's word together. We're gonna share how life is going and how the gospel speaks to our daily realities. We're gonna do that. But missional community isn't just that night of the week. It goes beyond that. It's, it's finding myself in the midst of a community. And so what's gonna happen is I'm going to find my life intersecting with those people in community multiple times a week, more than likely. Whether it be in fight club, play dates, barbecues and, and eat outs, going to the grocery store to get, going to the coffee shop, meeting up, whatever it might be, we're gonna find ourselves in community together. This is what creates this profound sense of unity that, that I belong to you and you belong to me because we both belong to Christ. This is where the togetherness of God's people comes from. And in Acts 2, we see this togetherness expressed in the, both the activity and the attitude of these people. So it's one thing to say, hey, I'm gonna need you to show up and hang out with your missional community family. I'll go, oh, fine, I, do. I got so much stuff to do, but fine. Right, this sort of like white knuckle, I guess, I'm obligated to do this. See, we don't see a single ounce of that. It says, they're meeting together with glad and generous hearts. There's a joy embedded in this communal life that they have in Christ. There's, the attitude of the Christian community isn't, oh, I guess I gotta do this, but it's viewed as a privilege. God has invited me into his family and I gotta sit around with these people. What a gift. I mean, I, I don't think we understand how big of a gift Christian community really is to us. So they have a, this attitude, glad, generous hearts, joyful hearts, praising God. But they're also doing stuff together. There, there's a certain kind of activity in gospel community. We see them studying God's words. Or, or the apostles' teaching. They're, they're taking what the apostles have been teaching and say, man, I wonder, I wonder how that would shape my life if I really believe that. And they're doing it together. They're worshiping together. They're rejoicing in the goodness and the grace of God. They're praying together. They gave themselves to the prayers, the liturgy. Now, there's these sort of formal settings that we have on Sunday mornings. We come together, we're singing together. There's liturgy that we, we participate in together. There's a preaching of the word that we do together. But there's also more of these informal settings where this communal life is being lived out, where they're eating together. They're, they're meeting the needs of one another, not because they got a pastor up there saying, hey, you guys got to take care of each other, but because the grace of Jesus has so profoundly shaped who they are. It's, it's just totally transformed their hearts where they were once hostile and cut off. Now I want to move toward this person and meet their needs. The spirit is moving in them in such a way. Now, this is another thing I want to show you. This is a community that parties. Yeah, Christians have more reason to rejoice and throw a party than any other people in our city. And so what do we do? When we come together, 
We ought to be joyful. We ought to rejoice in this gift that God's given us, both in our salvation and the family that he's put us in. And so we celebrate. Now, all of this to be said is, if you sum it all up, what's happened is these people who have been adopted into God's family, their life now has been rearranged in such a way where it totally revolves around the people and the mission of God. They've experienced God's grace, I'm in the family, and now the mission of God is moving in my own life. Now, why? Well, actually, let me say this. With this kind of community, it's really attractive. I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with a bunch of people that, that are meeting each other's needs, that find good reasons to celebrate, that are breaking bread and rejoicing? And Like, who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that? And, and really, it's attractive. When, when missional community is functioning the way it ought to be, it, it should be a place where we're seeing all kinds of people like, whoa, can I get in on that? Can I be part of it? There, there is this draw. And we see this with the apostles here in Acts chapter two, where, where we see that they have favor among all people. Now, eventually that's gonna expire, right? Because they start making these proclamations that Jesus is Lord and they can no longer run in tandem with, with whatever the culture wants to do. There's gonna be a, a diverging of paths, but what they're doing is attractive. And people still have this thing of, I wanna be part of that. And with that, this community grow day by day. It says that the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And when they get saved, boom, you're in community. Now, why is it that people are drawn to this? Why is it that there's this gravitational pull when we see gospel community functioning? Well, it's because everybody has a deep desire to belong. There's not a single person on the face of this earth that says, you know what? I absolutely don't need a single person in my life. I'm showing my cards here with all the Netflix that I'm watching here, but I, I got into um, the show Alone survival series. Like they, they take people away, throw them in the wilderness. They give them a couple of primitive tools and say, hey, um, here's a phone. You're gonna... You're gonna live out here as long as you possibly can, but if you, if you break, if you need to come back home, you call. You wanna know the number one reason why people call to get out? It's not because their life's in danger, which it kind of is at all the time. I mean, they're in grizzly bear country. It's not because of that. It's not because, you know, they're, they're super hungry, which they, they are super hungry. The primary reason why they pick up that phone and call is because they are desirous to be back with their family. They, they have this sense of, of, of Belonging that they just can't, no matter how big of a survivalist, no matter how much they love the outdoors, it pulls them back into community. Everybody has that thing embedded in us. We desire to belong. And the gospel, oh, and you wanna know what? The thing that stops us from belonging most of the time, if you wanna really go down, it's sin. Because my, you don't like my sin, I don't like your sin. And eventually it's like uh, magnets that are the same the same that just sort of push back. That's how it works. That's what sin does. But the gospel can actually overcome that. So the gospel puts us in community and then the gospel sustains community. The gospel gives us the sense of, of belonging that I cannot achieve on my own. Now in our day, with our cultural climate, 
it might seem like this Acts chapter two stuff is just a total pipe dream. Like this caliber of community is so far out of reach. I, I, I hear this all the time. I even had a, a seminary professor. I said, well, that was back then and now we're in different times. Like you, it's impossible to recreate that. People just embedded in cynicism because of, of their previous experiences in the church where, where church community didn't work that way. Now, I agree in the sense that Christian community, like this caliber of Christian community, is antithetical to the culture. It doesn't go hand in hand. It doesn't work well. There has to be some sort of toppling of, of Goliath that brings us into community. Our, our values as a culture for autonomy, our desire for convenience, our, our fear of being found out that we're actually sinners, makes us push away. It makes us opt for a low commitment, superficial kind of community. And what happens when churches stop calling people up to the kind of gospel community that God intends for his people to embody is that churches become defunct. Something's broken it. Nobody wants to be, it's not that attractive thing that people long to be a part of. It's something that people are quite okay with pushing away and saying, no thanks, that's not for me. But what we see in Acts chapter two isn't a back then thing. It's not isolated to that one moment in time and it'll never repeat itself ever again. The same thing that we see in Acts chapter two can very much become a reality right now. And in a lot of ways, it is. Because the same spirit that was at work in Acts chapter two is at work among Christians today. The same gospel that brought people into community and sustained this community is the same gospel that we have today. It is building and sustaining a distinctly Christian community. And, and the primary place where we live this out is within the context of our missional communities. Missional community is not a program. It's not an event. It's not just this one-off thing that I do in my week. It is a way of life. It's a way of saying, listen, I'm, this may not come naturally for me, but I want to share my life with you, and I would love if you would want to share your life with me, and together, we can follow Jesus. Now, are we perfect at this? If you've been in a missional community here, you should be able to say, nope. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of bright spots. In fact, a lot of times when we sit down as a missional community, if there's a visitor in the group and we're reading these passages from Acts chapter two, and we say, you know, they go, whoa, that's kind of what this whole thing is. It sounds pretty similar. But when you live into this community and you give your life to this, you start to see some of our blind spots, our weaknesses, where we aren't actually pulling this off. We're not nailing it. And the only thing that reveals is not that it's all for nothing. It doesn't mean that, you know, we should scrap it and start all over again, find a new way, invent a new method. All that means is we still need Jesus. We still need Jesus. The gospel doesn't just create this community, it sustains this community. And it's even in that temple metaphor, that imagery that he uses, that the cornerstone is Jesus, but it's Jesus that joins every single brick together. Now this means when sin comes along and interferes with community, the only viable remedy for this is the gospel. 
it's not behavior modification. It's not new boundaries for this person so I can distance myself. It's a mutual belief in the gospel that will bring us together and reconcile and mend what's been broken. It's because of this gospel that the church is resilient. And when she is firmly rooted in the gospel, she becomes more of the beautiful, splendorous bride that she was made to be. Now, being firmly rooted in the gospel is key, but that's not to say that Christian community cannot be compromised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this book, Life Together, it's a great little book. In fact, I would say if you just read the first chapter in itself, you will enter your community, your missional community as a better missional community member. So good. But he says there's a way that we can destroy community. And that's if our version, our dream, our our vision of of community eclipses the reality of what community really is. Or in other words, if our love for community eclipses our love for Jesus, then community will become a very unviable place to occupy. We don't make community the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church who makes community. And therefore, we as Christians ought to receive community as a gift. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we do that, community becomes a natural byproduct. But just because Christian community is a byproduct of the gospel, it does not make it optional. Here's my last thing. You need to be in community. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you need to be in community. Because community is the place where we can make disciples. Now, why do I need to be in community? Part of this here is if, if making disciples, if, if my discipleship is about me becoming more like Jesus, then we have to realize that Jesus himself exists in community. Since, since eternity passed, Jesus has been in community with the triune God, his heavenly father, Christ the son, and the Holy Spirit together in harmony Jesus has has been in community. So to be more like Jesus means being in community. In fact, you cannot become like Jesus. You cannot grow in your sanctification. You cannot become spiritually mature. It's impossible unless you're in community. Now, this is one of the reasons why when the Apostle Paul writes his epistles, the bulk of the time, he's addressing the whole congregation and not just a couple of people. It's a a place where the community comes together and has this work of making disciples. It's in community where Jesus makes the gospel more and more real to us, where our sin gets exposed all the more and we get more opportunities to receive God's grace and plunges us deeper. Community is the place where in real time, not in a classroom, not, not, not just in a book, which there are totally places for that, but community is the primary training ground where Jesus makes us more like Jesus. It's a place where we have this palpable encounter with God's grace, where we can experience the love and belonging that we receive from God through the Heavenly Father among our, our peers, among our gospel family. It's a place where sin is called out for what it is. We don't sweep stuff under the rug. We're able to say, hey, this is what's true and this is what's false. This is what's sin and this is what's righteous. And we can call each other out of darkness into light 
People can help you see your blind spots. People can help you see what's in the back of your head. And they do this speaking truth in love. Not, not to condemn, not to beat each other up and sort of create the superior, superiority complex of, well, I'm more spiritually mature than you, and so I'm going to look. Not at all. The whole purpose of this, the whole, whole point of being in community and letting the grace of Jesus circulate among us is that we would be built up in truth and grace and love. That the church would be a place of belonging. The church would be a place of encouragement and support. A church would be a place where we can help one another grow in the gospel for our good, for his glory. Community is the place where discipleship happens. Now, if you have a desire to be part of this kind of community, though imperfect, I want to invite you to come. Come, come join us. Come see the grace of Jesus that's at work among us right now. Hop into a mission community. Everybody's, the, the fall time's picking back up. There's more consistency in our mission community structure and in our, our, our time together. Come on in. Come, come join us as we fix ourselves on the person and work of Jesus and we see the brotherhood expand. If you're part of a missional community, I want to encourage you to give yourself to your missional community. Be the kind of person through God's grace that you want to see other people be like toward you. Be the person who reaches out and says, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you today. I'm, I'm, here's a scripture to encourage you, to, to help you fix your hope on the promises of God. Be, be that person who reaches out. Hey, I know that we had a, a last night we kind of pressed in on you on some things. Um, I'm just calling to see how, how, are you, how are you processing that? We, we really want to love you well through this. Be the kind of person that makes a casserole and brings it over to somebody who's got a, a bum leg or something, had just had an operation. Be the kind of person that, that we see in, in, in Acts chapter two. And as you pioneer this way and you get multiple people doing this together, we start to create a, a, a community that's more vibrant in this regard. Don't be a consumer. Contribute. Now, the only way that you can really be, be sustaining this for more than just a week is as you give yourself to community is that you fix your eyes on Jesus. See, Jesus, Jesus opted out of the eternal happiness, the eternal harmony that he had in, in, the, in the Trinity. So Jesus said, hey, listen, I will, I will put myself on the cross and I'm willing to take all this sin, all of this stuff that destroys relationship upon myself and, and then the father would actually forsake him, turn his face away from him, no longer have that occupy that space where Jesus felt the wrath of God come down upon himself. Jesus did that so you could experience what it's like to be in a grace-saturated community, to enjoy relationship with the Father and with God's people. It is this grace of Jesus that sustains us in the life of Christian community. There's no, there's no other way. And as we go deeper into God's grace together, guess what's gonna happen? The joy in our hearts increases. You, you can't help but be happy 
when you see what Jesus has done for you. Even though, that's why Paul says, hey, we're sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Even though we're going, going through a rough season, the gospel gives me buoyancy. And, and I can turn, when I, when I feel like I'm sinking, my community can serve as a way of holding me up in the midst of that, reminding me of the gospel. The gospel has to be central. So as we make disciples in community, we can't move past the gospel, we move deeper into the gospel. And this, this supper that we're about to take part in here this morning is a, a visible reminder that Jesus' body was broken, it was split in two, so that you could be brought into the body of Christ. So the dividing wall of hostility, all of the sin that keeps you from community could be dealt with and you could find yourself in the family of God. As we come forward this morning, let us, let us do so with, with just, I'd like to move us through two general heart postures. First is a heart of contrition, repentance. Like one of the freedoms of the gospel is that we don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to pretend like it doesn't exist. We actually get to confess our sin and we have great liberty in doing so. And as we do so, receive the grace of Jesus. No, he, he loves you. He cares for you. He provided for your deepest needs. And as you move from repentance, would you move to joy? A meal, a celebration, a festival. To, to enjoy the grace that God has given us. Now, this is also a communal meal that... Um, we're told that, that if, if you have, if you and your brother are at odds, if there's unrepentant sin, if there's, there's conflict, if there's something going on that has not been yet dealt with, before you come to the table, you gotta deal with it. Because this is not just a meal with you and God, you know, a little, a little date night. It's, it's a family meal. And so let us live into the reality, the communal reality of the gospel together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, undeserved totally. No way we could earn it, no way that we could pull ourselves up and make ourselves more desirable to you. It's while we are dead that you send your son to die for us. And as his body was broken, Lord, you have assembled for yourself a new body, the church, a people who have been called out, out of darkness into light. And I pray, Father, that this meal would help us this meal would sustain us as we grow deeper and deeper into the gospel and, and the, the Christian community comes to life around us. Would this meal be the driving force? Your grace in this meal be the, the driving force behind what we're asking for you to do. And as you pull a community together, Lord, make us desirable that the people would want to be part of this, that there would be something that people look into and say, man, I want to be a part of that. Would we be that kind of a community that more and more would come to know the real Jesus who died for sinners to bring them to new life? We pray that you would be with us as we take this meal, Lord, that we would sense a real strength, a real spiritual strength being conveyed to us as we take and eat. Bless it to our bodies and bless our bodies to your service in Jesus' name.